Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores and deconstructs the success strategies of established horror directors while summarizing the key insights and resources that you can use on your own filmmaking journey. Today on the show, we have Adam Stein and Zach Lepofsky, the directors of Freaks. So Freaks was not necessarily a horror movie, but it did deliver the blood. This was a fascinating movie that, on one hand, was an independent character study, but on the other hand, delved deep into superhero-level mythology and superhero ability. And um, it was really fascinating to see how Zach and Adam were able to play with such outlandish and typically big-budget subject matter on such a small budget. That and the movie is loaded with some very compelling performances from Bruce Dern and Emile Hirsch, and uh, it was actually one of the most surprisingly engaging movies of the year, for sure. This was Adam and Zach's first feature, and we talk at length about how they were able to get it off the ground, how they got Bruce Dern involved, and how they were able to do so much with so little. All of that, and so much more, on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, without further ado, here are Adam Stein and Zach Lepofsky, the directors of Freaks. First of all, huge congratulations on Freaks. I, uh, I I got to see it the other night and really, really enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it was a complete and total breath of fresh air from a number of different perspectives. I mean, personally, I can't seem to put it into any sort of genre box, but uh, <laughs> it was so We love that. We yeah? love that. It was so. It was super duper unique, and uh, yeah, yeah, we've. Uh, it's often been. Sometimes it's been described as the kitchen sink of genre. So we've 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 loved that description. Well, we we love also just not being in, inside any box because that means that it's you know it, it's somewhat original because genre itself, when you think about it, is really just kind of a, a category of things that have been done before. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of tropes and kind of predictable elements of it. But I, I, this story just seemed to flow so so seamlessly, um, and it definitely was not predictable at all. So how how did this all come together? Can you just walk me through the overall process of getting the movie made from initial idea to development to uh, to theatrical distribution? <laughs> well, that is a very long story. Uh, that, that's like uh, five years of our lives you just described in one sentence. Wow. Um, so, I mean, basically, Adam and I, um, we were filmmakers and, and directors and, and directors for hire. We were actually, you know, working on TV shows here and there and some smaller like TV and, and sort of digital things. But obviously we wanted to be um, filmmakers and we wanted to have our voice out there in the world of stuff that we had created. Um, but all the films we tried to get going or films that we found that we attached ourselves to, uh, they just all never happened. It's just, you know, the, the process of getting a script to the point where you're on set is almost impossible between trying to find the money, trying to find the actors, trying to get all the different ingredients into the same stew at the right time it just it always falls apart um and we just kind of felt like it it always falls apart because we aren't the ones that have the decision as to when we're making it right and so we were really inspired by this um speech that mark duplass gave 
uh, it's quite famous now called the cavalry is not coming. And uh, he gave it at South by Southwest and, and he kind of laid out all sorts of very practical advice as to kind of how to jumpstart your career and how to make sure that you are in the driver's seat of it. And, you know, a lot of what he said resonated with us. And one of the big things he said is make the movie that you can make right now with what you have right now. Stop trying to, to make a movie with stuff you don't have, because then by the very nature of it, you need other people to let you make it. Um, if you don't have $10 million, don't make a movie that costs $10 million. <laughs> like, you know, his first movie was about a puffy chair and a van and his brother, cause he had a puffy chair, a van and his brother and, and they went to Sundance. And so we kind of pulled the different things that Adam and I had. Um, and we basically started working on a story that was about, uh, a father and his child, uh, because Adam had just at the time had a five-year-old son, uh, in a house cause Adam had a house and, uh, and another character that was basically, uh, at the time it was the uncle, but eventually it became the grandfather. And, um, and that was basically a role I was going to play. And originally the, the first version of this movie was going to be the two of us acting in it with Adam's son being the kid filming in Adam's house, um, just with cameras and gear that we already had. And, and we wrote that story, you know, still it was basically the story that, that is freaks now, but the scale of it was something that we could achieve basically by ourselves. Mm. And as we worked on it, it started to grow and people started to want to be involved and slowly, eventually, you know, actors came on board and money came on board and it kind of grew. It still was always under our control. We never took any element that basically came with a catch. <laughs> if it said, we will give you this, but only if this happens, we were like, sorry, that's not what this is. And luckily we got a group of people together and in a, in a, that put in money that understood that we were making this movie no matter what, with whatever we had by the time we shot it. You know, if, if a famous person showed up on set, then great. But if they didn't, we're still making the movie. Um, and that kind of propelled us forward um, to shooting it and, and eventually, um, you know, getting the movie out to festivals, luckily. And then it sold at the Toronto Film Festival. Um, it was one of the biggest sales at the festival. And, and we sold it to a company that wanted to put it in theaters, which was incredible. And then we, we went all around the world to over 40 film festivals with the movie. And then eventually it, it came out in theaters just a few weeks ago. Very cool. That feeling of we're making this no matter what was really the essential the essential piece for all, for all your filmmaker listeners, that, that feeling of, um, we're, we're doing this and, you know, Oh, you want to, you want to invest a little bit of money. Great. But you're not getting any control and we're not attaching a list actors because that takes too long. Um, and some people balked at that and said, no, we only want to invest if you have, you know, certain actors. And we said, okay, well then I'm sorry, we can't, take your money. Um, and that was very empowering and very unusual for yeah. them to hear. And some of them gave us the money anyway. Like, Whoa. That, that's, that's how powerful that, that, um, passion is. And that, but it was only possible because we had a script that could actually be made if we didn't get their money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of a self-fulfilling kind of snowball thing where when you say, um, we're making this money with or without your clients or with or without your money. Agents and investors somehow were very like, 
the fear of missing out was very powerful. And sometimes they said, okay, no, 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 we want to be involved. Um, so that's, it's kind of a jujitsu move, but it worked for us. Interesting. Was that, um, was that premeditated or was that just kind of like a wonderful side effect of having a tremendous amount of confidence in your project? It was part of the DNA of, of what inspired the project because we had been, as Zach said, involved in other things that didn't happen because the people involved had too many strings attached. And so we just said, we're doing this with no strings. And if you want to be involved, great. And if you don't, we don't need you. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a, it was kind of an unanticipated side effect of, of that philosophy. Nice. No, I feel like there's a tremendous amount to learn from that. And I think that, I mean, a number, there's a number of huge lessons in there. I mean, one being that, that lesson that I, I first learned from Robert Rodriguez, the whole idea of film a movie yep. around what you have immediate access to. That's what he did with El Mariachi. It's what Kevin Smith did with clerks. Um, but then just having this ceaseless vision and the confidence in that is attractive to producers. Cause I feel like producers will kind of do somewhat of a shit test and they'll, they'll see how far they can push you. If they can push you around, they will. Um, but if they see that you do hold strong to your vision and that you're not going to compromise regardless of how much money they're, they're offering you that alone, I, I feel like they look for directors who have that not quite defiance, but it's probably not the right word, but have that, that sense of strength to them. And it sounds like that's what you guys essentially. Well, I think we, we, we compromise, but as long as it still achieves the same vision, like Adam and I were the producers on this one, but we, we always encourage trying to make the best movie with what you have. And sometimes you don't have what you need. And so you end up coming up with a better idea that costs less. So like, it's not necessarily about just being totally driven to only doing what you want, but knowing what, no, always serve in service of the movie. Right. And, and sometimes the, the forces of reality uh, are undeniable <laughs> and you have to kind of go with them. But often that's what leads, those constraints lead to um, creative solutions that are, that are better than you would have had if you had what you wanted. And so a lot of the elements in the movie um, came out of those creative constraints. You know, we knew we couldn't do certain things just because we knew we wanted to keep the budget low. And, um, you know, we weren't going to rely on, on sort of the big tropes or the big visual effects that, that, that this genre might normally have. And that forced us to come up with new creative solutions that, you know, have been really interesting for audiences. So, um, you know, it's, I don't think the message is, is, uh, is to, to never change, but it's, it's to kind of keep your vision very clear while also keeping your eyes wide open. <laughs> Got it. No, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, I thought what for me, one of the most compelling elements of it was how just the emotional strength of it. And I feel like emotional character arcs and emotional stories that go this deep are really rare in these 300, 400, 500 million dollar budget Marvel movies. You know, they're of similar mm -hmm. subject matters. But I mean, as you were saying before, it seems like there was a real sense of resourcefulness. And all right, you might not have an Iron Man budget, but you you can you can invest more in performances and invest more in in kind of emotional elements of it as well and i mean to me that was one of the most compelling elements of the of the movie was i was very emotionally compelled by it oh that's great yeah yeah that, thank you um 
that was sort of, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of the business side of the, of the inspiration for the movie, but that was kind of the creative inspiration for the movie. You know, Zach and I have been sci-fi horror comic book fans forever. Um, but we've, we've felt that a lot of the, those, some of those kinds of movies that are made on the studio level these days just are, are emotionally kind of, you know, either empty or fake or predictable or, you know, just has this gloss to it that felt like didn't do justice to kind of what that would really be like. Right. What would it really feel like to be in this world? What would it, what would it really feel like to be a kid who's growing up like this, you know, uh, and, and seeing my own kid experience huge emotions you know kids have have big big feelings um and that's often even not depicted in any genre um often kids are shown as either just cute and and kind of empty or uh maybe sort of wise but passive observers of what's happening um it didn't kind of capture the real kind of big swings of the roller coaster of childhood that I was witnessing as a dad. Right. And I was kind of think, you know, we kind of felt like, wow, that that would be really interesting to to really dig into and see what it would feel like to be a kid in this world and what it would feel like to be a parent in this world. And um let's get into that. Let's let's do that. And you know, we were really ex- excited to tell that emotional roller coaster story. Um and at the same time, we also had some advice from kind of mentor uh, filmmakers of ours that said, you know, when you do go out to actors and try to get great actors attached to your script, what they look for more than anything is a role that they can sink their teeth into. Mm. That they, you know, actors love to chew the scenery. Actors love to play warm and hot and cold and 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 funny and dark and yeah. have the kind of full expression the full rainbow of human experience in one role that's what they that's what turns them on more than anything so as they're turning pages they're not just looking for is this a good story but what will playing this role you know really w- excite me mm. you know how how will i be excited in playing this role so for every character we really wanted to create that kind of huge emotional experience. And, um, you know, that's what, that's what excited the actors. And, um, you know, we weren't offering them a lot of money, so we had to offer them incredible characters to play. And that's kind of where we put our focus in draft after draft of the script, how to make these characters, you know, really kind of, um, stand out for actors and, and ultimately for audiences. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a big concept, particularly in the world of independent film, where as the performances of your actors are so important, like they're 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 arguably one of the half of the battle, you know, when it comes to making a decent film. And I feel like a lot of indie filmmakers don't approach notable actors because they feel like, oh, we can't afford them. However, 
actors are typically looking for experience or looking for opportunities where they can showcase ranges that they've either never had the opportunity to do before or stuff that they just love doing. I mean, in other words, I feel like a lot of indie filmmakers forget that actors just love acting. And if you give them a good enough role, then you can't you can negotiate things like salary. Plenty of actors said no, (laughs) because it was still very, very low budget. But the few that that budget wasn't an issue for uh, it's the script that made the difference. Yeah. Well, can you talk about how you got your major actors to jump on board? I mean, namely Bruce Dern and uh, Emil Hirsch. Of course. Yeah. Oh, and, but uh, there's one more thing I wanted to say, Cool. which is I haven't seen Joker yet. Um, but from all the buzz, I think what, what people are responding to with that movie is doing the kind of superhero sci-fi thing from a very deep character level yeah, and, and, and a very real character level. Um, and so we feel like, you know, hopefully people see the same thing in freaks where that's kind of what we had always wanted to do from the beginning. Yeah. So it's kind of cool that that's kind of where the evolution has taken us with, with a movie like Joker too. Um, but in terms of getting the actors attached, there might be other ways to do it. And I think sometimes it happens when people have personal connections um, we didn't have those personal connections. So for us, we were really starting from square one. And, you know, when we, when we got our first investor in who said, yeah, I'll give you guys a little bit of money for this. I really like this, this concept and this script. We use that money, that first money to hire a casting director, because if you don't have connections, they do, that's what their job is. They, they know all the agents and all the managers and stuff. So that was kind of money well invested. It was $10,000 to hire our casting directors to do um, the sort of five lead roles. Um, And what, what happens next is basically you, they make a list, you make a list with them of who you want to approach and in what order. And you send, you send a personal letter. We sent a personal letter to the person describing the movie and why they would be perfect for this role. We also had put together a lookbook, which is basically a, a kind of pretty photo book. Um, you can find examples online um, and the script. And we sent those three items w- via the casting director to the, to the agents of that actor. And then you wait. And it really has this feeling sometimes of sending it, sending this stuff into a black hole. Because sometimes you can just not hear back, um, and even you might not even get a pass. Um, you might just not hear back, and then and three weeks later you decide, okay, well, who are we? Let's time to do it again. Um, and that's sort of the process. Um, and for us, what was kind of encouraging, we had done lots of drafts of the script that we did staged readings of um, with our friends, with actors reading the script and. Um, and, and a small audience listening to it so that we could really hone the draft and make it better and better. So by the time we were sending it out, it was actually, it was actually pretty good. It wasn't good at first. So it's not just us saying we're great writers. It was, it was really that process of iteration that made it pretty good. Um, and so one of the things that was encouraging is we got a couple responses from actors that said, you know, I don't want to do a movie this low budget. I'm done doing movies that are this indie, but the script is pretty good guys. Good, good job. 
And mm. and that was that was encouraging and exciting, you know, to hear from these actors that we loved who were saying that to us. Um, and so we just kept doing it and send, sending it off. Um, and, and pretty soon, actually, Bruce was the first person who responded and just said, all right, guys, I want to do it. I like this role, uh, which was just like kind of shocking, but also very, very exciting. Yeah, the other thing that was really noticeable about their performances was that everybody had a very natural level of chemistry to each other. So I was wondering how you guys approached rehearsals or did you do rehearsals or what was the overall process like working with these actors? Yeah, we did a little bit of rehearsing, mostly with Emil and Lexi, just kind of with them in the house, just so that they would have this feeling like they've been in there for a long time. Um, but you know, a lot of the chemistry, I think, comes out of, A, they're just all super experienced actors who are incredible pros, um, some of the best talents in the world, I think. And then at the same time, we we were the writers and directors, so we, we always were willing and, and ready to tweak and push and pull the script um, and also let them go off the script whenever it it didn't feel real. So we were always looking, we really wanted to make a movie that felt almost like a documentary. Like it just felt like it was actually happening. Yeah. And so we had our, we had our eyes open for that. And, and so did the actors, they understood the tone. Everyone knew what we were going after. So anytime anything didn't feel right, didn't feel like it would actually happen in that situation. Um, we would adjust and we would ask ourselves, well, what would really happen and how would you actually feel? And then we would do some improv just to see where that would lead. And then we take the best piece of that and incorporate that back into the script. And then, you know, so we were always kind of navigating the river to try and make sure that that, that reality came across um, in their performances and everyone was a partner in that. Yeah, it seems like collaboration in that regard is really important with actors. I feel like a lot of directors get caught up in that auteur theory that they have to be the end all and be all of every single last creative and writing decision. Whereas if you do collaborate with people like your actors together, you can organically, cohesively reach a point that yeah. uh, that, that just serves the movie beautifully. As long as everyone's making the same movie. So right. you have to do your work at the beginning to kind of make sure everyone understands where you're headed so that everyone can help get you there. Um, that has a lot to do with casting and also like just your initial meetings, just sort of finding those North stars for each, for everybody, as far as what you're trying to achieve so that anytime someone doesn't make the same movie that you're making with everyone else, you um, you don't just tell them they're wrong and, and correct them. You you help readjust where they're aiming so that you say, no, it, it isn't like that because we're all doing this and, and this is what we should do and, and this is why so that we achieve this. That way all their future decisions are in the right direction rather than just um, kind of telling them what to do. It's sort of pointing them in the right direction. Right. Um, and that way you, because you can't make every decision as a as a filmmaker i mean we we had a lot of control just because we were the writers directors and producers so there was no one above us telling us what to do which was great um and and sometimes that can be really challenging as a director because sometimes you you have a very clear vision but the people above you have ulti the ultimate say 
And so you have to make sure to get what they want, even if you don't necessarily agree. Um, and you try and also get what you want, but sometimes there isn't necessarily time. And sometimes the actor wants to do something completely different from what you want or they or your bosses want. And so you've got to like navigate all of that. In this case, on this film, everyone was very much aligned. Everyone knew what the script was, knew what the story was, and we had the power to shift and, and manipulate that whenever we needed to. So that's sort of why I think the film has such a, a unique uh, perspective and vision to it. But um, because we were able to take those risks and everyone could understand that we had the final say to kind of, if they had an idea and we said, yeah, that that would be in the movie, yeah. um, which is really powerful. I, I would almost suggest to your listeners to experiment with the idea of the opposite of a watch war theory um, <laughs> in order to make the best movie possible. And by that, I mean, as a director, you still have the final say on an indie, indie project, but amazing ideas can come from anywhere. The, the, the grip or the prop assistant might have an idea that will, that will improve the movie. And you can decide whether to use it or not. But if it improves the movie, it makes you look good. So we, we, we get to benefit as directors from the amazing ideas that can come from this whole crew of people. Um, and from stuff like stage readings where you're getting feedback on the script or from test screenings of the edit where you're getting all, this, all these amazing ideas that can improve your movie. And I think a lot of times directors who have this sort of ego-based idea of what they are can shut those ideas off because they didn't come from them. You know, they think, oh, I'm the auteur and all the ideas have to come from me. Right. And that can make your movie worse because <laughs> you're not getting to benefit from all the ideas that are flowing. So if you can kind of uh, grab grab all those ideas and use the ones that make the movie better, then you're going to look better. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as long as you have a good yeah. understanding of what, what the movie is, then you can kind of filter the, the, the ideas that make the movie better from the ideas that are a different movie. Um, so it's still you kind of being the auteur, but it's just not all of your ideas. It's you're just the one sort of uh, curated all. Yeah. Interesting. So it's important to kind of treat your cast and crew as a brain trust for the movie and constantly being a, yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, and it's contagious. it's contagious. As soon as someone, you know, a lot of film sets can be pretty toxic. People get yelled at for stepping out of line and, and stuff like that. And some people come from those sets, assuming all sets are going to be like that. And once they see someone else's idea, someone else gets sort of creatively invested in the project and suggest something and actually get steer the ship and and that idea is actually accepted and goes up the line and the ship turns because of that they are they are way more likely to do it because they saw someone else do it and so it it, it really is contagious once you can create the right environment uh, it makes a whole world of sense so it's one th idea i wanted to return to is the idea of ensuring everybody's making the same movie and having was there any beyond the script and beyond like initial meetings was there any other way that you guys enabled everybody to stay on the same page in terms of what the story was? Was there any sort of protocol for establishing a North Star, either in a document form or anything like that? 
Hmm. I don't um, think so. I mean, we, we had a lookbook and we, and we, with our DP, you know, we looked at a lot of different movies and stuff like that. But um, was there anything you can think of that? Was the, was the question, uh, what was our document that we made that was our North star or what was, what yeah, were other or, inspirations? Well, I think yeah. the, my larger question is um, how did you guys approach world building in this regard? Cause this, this movie mm. took place in very much its own universe. So was yeah. there any sort of fundamental document that laid out the kind of canonical rules of this world and this time period and things? That's a really good question. Yeah. I think what we never had to create a document because it was just from Zach and I, my, our brains. <laughs> we, um, we had argued a lot. <laughs> over, over, over three years had developed the script and discussed every detail of the world again and again and again just between the two of us. So when we were on set making the movie and afterward, we knew all that stuff backwards and forwards between us. But because we never had executives to deal with, we never had to create those kinds of documents for them. Um, usually on a movie or TV show that, that's bigger, you need to create that kind of document so that all your partners, like your producers or your executives or um, the other writers on the show or something like that, are all on the same page with you. But because Zach and I had already hashed all that stuff out between us and there was no one else involved really on a creative level, um, we we didn't need that document. Um, but that was a very good question. It was really just in our heads. And we would sometimes, you know, kind of uh, whisper in the corners and be like, oh, remember when we had that idea such and such? Maybe we could say this and that would mean this. And we could kind of work it out between us, but yeah. we never had to had to bring anyone else into that loop. Yeah, a big part of our brainstorming is the two of us sort of kicking the tires on every idea. So whoever suggests an idea, we both just start immediately sort of going, well, if that if that's possible in this world, then this would happen and this would happen and this would happen. And then we go, oh, well, that's a, that, that doesn't seem good. Well, what would... What if it was this? And well, if that was possible in this world, this would happen. This would happen. And we and we kind of build out all the different things in the world that would happen from one tiny decision. Yeah. And a lot a lot of the details in the movie come from those discussions of sort of kicking the tires of stuff that would never ha that doesn't actually happen in the movie, but would happen in the world. And so we we a lot of tiny details end up you know in the film stuff probably no one else would ever notice little Easter eggs and stuff that come from Adam and I sort of thinking through the consequences of story ideas. So yeah. some, we need, we need some specific thing to happen in the movie, but if that happens in the movie here, then that must've happened in the world here and here and here. And that means that this would have happened. And then, you know, we just kind of build it out in our heads, which is really fun. And then the other part of it um, comes from all of those uh, test screenings and from uh, the script readings that we do, because Adam and I can build a world that we think fills all the holes and makes a lot of sense. And then we will read it to an audience or screen it for an audience. And they'll start asking questions we never even considered uh, because of things that we've set up. And so then we we tweak the world from there. We go, okay, well, if they're thinking that, then let's add this piece to the world and, that, and that'll make them think this. And we kind of are, it's a continuous um, you know thing that we do. It just, just sort of, we build the world and then we build the script. It's, it's, it's all happening at once, all the way through the edit. There's there's big world building elements that came up just in the edit hmm. uh, <laughs> when we realized, oh shit, people 
aren't getting this thing or people are thinking this, which isn't right. We need to add and we'd add little things like on a television or over the radio or on a sign. And they would just sort of help um, clarify the world for the audience. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, throughout the course of it, it felt like a very established thought through world. There was an interview with Quentin Tarantino when I think when he was talking about Kill Bill and he talked about how you can always tell if a director has thought the world that they're placing you in that you can always tell whether or not they've thought it out or where whether or not you're in good hands. So we talked about when he was making Kill Bill, he made thousands of decisions about the world and none of which made it into the movie. But they were like little references Mm -hmm. to these details that just kind of made the audience feel as though they were in a world or a universe that's been just properly thought through. And uh, yeah, yeah throughout well, the course great of- example of that, I heard Tarantino talking about once upon a time, he was talking about um, Brad Pitt's character. There was like a big debate on whether Brad Pitt's character could have won a certain fight that happens in the movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then his answer was incredible. He went into like Brad Pitt's character's biography, the wars that he fought in all the different types of things that he had done. Like he went into like, you know, all of the reasons that Brad Pitt could have, you know, you can clearly see that he had thought through every moment of that character's life. Not necessarily <laughs> was that in the movie, uh, but it was pretty, it was an interesting window into Tarantino's mind. Cause you could tell like uh, there was no doubt in his mind that he could have won that fight. Yeah. 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 Just these little details that you just, if you, if you've lived in your own worlds that you're creating, you, you, you can, you totally bring that to the screen. And yeah, the, the world I, I thought, I thought was really, really compelling. And one of the other things that I really loved about the movie was that it so easily could have been PG-13. And I personally am a big fan (laughs) of just just kind of more ruthless, pure cinema. Um, (laughs) And this did have a strong family element to it, but it also did. It it delivered the action. It delivered a lot of blood, but none of which felt gratuitous, but it just felt like a very pure vision. Was there any question in your mind that this was going to be a hard R? We, you know, we never wanted to do something. It was all about the realness, right? So it was all, it all came from creatively a place of wanting everything to feel very, very real. And so when we got to those moments where we felt like something violent had to happen, we, we never wanted to, we never wanted it to feel like we held back um, because then you know as an audience, oh, that, that's, not quite, that's not quite right. That's not quite real. But we so, also didn't or, want it to be gratuitous either. We wanted to kind of you know, find that middle ground where it just felt like, wow, that's what would really happen. And then also we wanted it to be, give you the sense that anything could happen. If you, if you felt like you were in the safety of a PG world <laughs> and that any character is safe and everything is going to be fine, then the, the thriller element isn't there as much. Yeah. Um, Early on, there's a few things that happen where you go, oh, shit, if that's possible, anything's possible. Right. Um, and there's there's some moments that make people uncomfortable that we that some people said, oh, you should cut that out. And we're like, no, because feeling uncomfortable is part of this. Like we want people to feel uncomfortable there. Yeah, um, there's a there's a moment early on where um, in one of the first scenes with Bruce and Lexi where he um where he like basically curses right in front of her face and you know uh can can we can we swear on this show oh please 
Yeah. So there's a line early on where he's um, you still aren't sure about who his character is or what his intentions are, where he says, like, right close up to her face, your dad's turning you into a pussy. And um, it makes people squirm. It really does. And um, for us, that was an important moment because it's sort of a warning shot for the audience. Like, Mm. buckle up. Like, this is going to get uncomfortable at times. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we discussed with the editor taking that out because it is a little bit unnecessary. Like, you you know, he doesn't have to curse there, but it's just for his character. That's what he would say. Right. And it also sets you up for like, this character is a loose cannon. He doesn't care that she's seven years old. Right. He, he's going to do some stuff. So buckle up. <laughs> but it also <laughs> like, I think in your brain at that point, you're thinking, okay, is this you? It, it, sort of without really thinking about it, you're going, okay, this so far, this movie is PG 13. Like nothing's happened. That would make me think that we're going to go to any rated R type place. There's been no gratuitous violence or sex or anything like that. And so then suddenly a character kind of out of nowhere says pussy. And you're like, wait, what? Like, what is going on in this movie? (laughs) Like, it's sort of, that's what we mean by warning shot. It sort of makes you go, wait, I thought this was PG-13. Like, you can't do that. Yeah. And then you're, and then it makes you go, well, shit, what else is going to happen? Like, (laughs) so it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a small thing, but it's just the beginning of an iceberg that starts to really, you know, go places and. Yeah. And uh, and it was fun. Well, you're dealing with apocalyptic themes here. So, I mean, Bruce Dern saying the word pussy isn't the worst thing in the world in comparison (laughs) to everything else. But I do remember that moment. And I do remember it did kind of instantly give his character a ruthlessness. um, And you're kind of unsure about him at first. And there's a couple like uncomfortable moments with him and the little girl. But by the end, you, you completely and totally, or at least I did, fell in love with him. And I think that that speaks to the, I mean, obviously the writing, but also his performance as well, that he was able to be so redeemable while being a crotchety old loose cannon. But uh, absolutely. Yeah, he yeah, was, he, he was really he fantastic. He had a lot of warmth for her. Like he loved Lexi. He is kind of a crotchety old man um, that he plays on screen. He's, he's very, you know, very tough and very intense in yeah. real life as well. Um, but he loved Lexi and he's a dad and had a daughter and and kind of was just totally inspired by that and drew on those feelings in working with her. Um, But we wanted to do that with all the characters, Emile's character as well. He, I think a lot of people hate him in the first half hour and you slowly kind of understand why he's, why he is the way he is. Right. And, you know, some people are brought to tears at the end um, because they've they've grown to love him. So, well, I at first and, didn't couldn't yeah. tell if he was mentally stable or not because I went into the movie completely blind. I didn't read any synopsis or anything. I just went right for it. Um, so, not knowing anything and having that initial sense of is this really happening or is he some sort of like prepper type of personality who thinks the apocalypse is outside? That made yeah. it really interesting going in completely blind, not knowing. Well, we- we really wanted the movie to that was all intentional. Like at the beginning, you are unclear of what the movie is, what genre it is. Is it the apocalypse? Is it not? Is there a virus? Are there zombies? Are they ghosts? Like you're just sort of like right. you're desperately trying to put the movie in a box at the beginning. And that was all intentional. But what was really important to us was that as the movie becomes clearer and as the world becomes clearer, 
that not a single thing at the beginning was a red herring. Right. That there wasn't one of the things I hate and Adam and I worked really hard to do was that we never wanted there to be stuff that was there just to mislead you. Right. But doesn't actually make sense once you know what's going on. I find that <laughs> so, so annoying when people do that. It's, yeah, it feels antithetical totally. to cinema. Well, and you feel you feel gypped because you're like, I couldn't have figured that out. You were just manipulating me. Right. So what makes this film so much fun? And a lot of people have said, I was just looking at a tweet that someone's like, I've, I've seen this movie twice in theaters because the second watch is so much more enjoyable because all the details of all those mind fucks at the beginning, they, they all add up once you know what's actually happening. And it's really intriguing to see all those kind of clues and elements that didn't make sense and were unclear at the beginning because now they, they all make sense and you get sort of another wave of understanding uh, once you know sort of what's going on and what's outside and why he's doing what he's doing. And, right. Um, and that's really satisfying for us. That's cool. And we also wanted to make sure that no character was all good or all bad. I mean, that's, that's the common thing in movies in the, in this genre, yeah. um, in the kind of sci-fi and, and horror also like there's always a bad guy and, and generally, you know, even if characters are, are flawed, they're, they're good at heart. Um, and we wanted to go deeper than that and really make you wonder, is this a good guy? Is this a bad guy? Like, I don't know. They're, yeah. they're sort of, they're sort of both. And they're kind of in this messy gray, which is more real too. Cause totally. in real life, nobody's all good or all bad. Yeah. And even with Chloe, you know, you're, uh, most people are rooting for her the entire time, but there's a bit of a twinge of, is she really, am I rooting for the right thing? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were really excited to do that with each character. Yeah. I mean, that definitely made it pretty fascinating. She has moments where she, just as a child who has that much power probably would be, there's moments where she was very questionable. Her morality was very questionable, but then, you know, it, and that made her a very fascinating character as opposed to just a cliche child character, you know, but uh, I think her morality is questionable, but her does what she's trying to achieve should always be very like you can understand why she's doing what she's right. doing, whether, whether you agree with it or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention and ask about was so some of the superhuman elements when you when you have a, when you have a lower budget. Having huge, uh, the, the the concept behind this is enormous, but you were able to do it so seamlessly with with what you what you had stated was a low budget. But it doesn't at any point feel like low budget. It seems like you guys were very selective in your use of CGI, and all the CGI I thought looked good. But there was also just seemed to be this resourcefulness with the way that you were able to show some of the supernatural or superhuman abilities like her. I believe it would be astral projection. Like some of those scenes were beautifully done, but they didn't look terribly expensive to shoot, but they still looked fantastic. So I'm wondering yeah, how the, you were able to kind of wrangle such a big concept into a low budget and what were the kind of how, what was your process for being resourceful and how you were able to showcase these kind of larger than life concepts in a, uh, in a, in a comparatively small budget. Yeah. Uh, we designed it from sort of the very beginning, knowing that, you know, Adam and I both come from a post background. Um, we've both been editors and I've done a lot of visual effects myself. And so when we were writing, we kind of had a pretty clear idea of what we thought would be achievable 
but still look really good. And a lot of that is relying on sort of compositing techniques, which is basically filming elements and then combining them rather than CGing them from scratch. Right. Um, and so all of the different superpowers are based on things that are fairly photographic um, in nature so that um, they can look very realistic fairly you know, easily with just sort of one person and a laptop. Um, but we also uh, came at all of the powers from a very personal uh, level. All of the things that people can do are based on their characters. Um, when they, uh, whatever their deepest desire is, is sort of generally what their power is. So astral projection, for example, as you call it, we called it sort of mental mental Skype. <laughs> but she's a she's a girl who wants to be outside and connect with other people, but she can't leave. And so her ability is to bring them to her and they see her where they are. Um, and she has no control over sort of her life. And eventually she, she gains the ability of control. Yeah. And the dad wants to protect her so he can put her in a bubble. Um, the mom wants to escape so she can, you know, do what she can do. Uh, <laughs> so the, the world is all kind of came from a character level and then also sort of a, how can we achieve certain things that will still look really good? So we didn't pick like giant CG lizards or anything like that because we knew we wouldn't be able to achieve that in a way that looked good. Yeah. Um, and, but we also wanted the world to feel real. So we wanted to kind of feel like you could basically photograph stuff. Like a lot of the visual effects we did, we added a lot of camera shake and lens flares and dirt on the lens and, and just like things that make it seem like a cameraman filmed it. A lot of the times, like sometimes you miss the visual effect and then it pans over and you're seeing the result. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's again, to feel like it's just actually happening and, and we're, we're filming it. But all of that was very carefully put together by design. Cool. And the other th last few questions, um, the story itself was so it, it was such a well-developed story. I mean, there were setups, there were payoffs, but it didn't at the same time, it didn't feel like a cliche story trope. So I was wondering, I mean, what your guys is either approach to storytelling is or what your if there are any fundamental volumes that you return to for storytelling, like, I don't know, the works of Joseph Campbell or anyone where does your personal kind of storytelling education come from and how did you apply that to, to, to the story of this movie? Yeah. I mean, we have, we kind of use some of the same like basic building blocks that are very common. You know, one of the big ones is um, what are, what are characters goals, <laughs> you know, which is a very basic thing, but getting that right is, is very important. Um, and, uh, also, you know, we we subscribe to the idea of like kind of theme, like what is the story really about at its core um, beyond, you know, what is it? What is the what is the story trying to say? So for us in this one, it was kind of like when you're different in a, in a way that the world doesn't like, you have a choice between hiding who you are and standing up for who you are. And so. Um, we had characters that represented that theme. You know, the dad represents hiding um, to be safe. And the grandpa represents fighting, standing up for who you are. So that kind of core um, debate of the theme was, was part of the DNA. Um, and, you know, the 
uh, at a scene level, um, we really do a lot of talking about conflict and kind of in this scene, what are the characters' different goals and how do they, how do they oppose each other? Because um, we really feel like that's a way for a scene to come to life. Um, you know, she wants to get out that door and he wants her to stay inside. I mean, it's right. very simple. Um, but a lot of times I think writers like forget about that, that very simple stuff. Um, and so each scene by scene, we really kind of broke down before we started writing even what is the conflict in the scene? What do the characters want? Um, and what is, what is the turning point where one of them wins or, 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 um, their, their ideas change. Um, and then how does the scene resolve? And we kind of did broke that down for every scene, even before we started writing. But then another thing we did was really getting into that iterative process where we, after we wrote a draft, we really tested it to see if it worked. We we're kind of inspired by Pixar and um, the other kinds of animated movies that, that really work that way, where they think they know what they're doing, but then they test it to see if it worked. And then they realize, oh, shit, we've made a mistake and we got to redo this. Um, uh you know, we do we do talk about three act structure and and the Joseph Campbell kind of point of no return um, kind of stuff, um, but it, uh, really at at its core, we we just try to keep it simple because I think my experience is it's really easy to get lost in that stuff, right? And think, okay, well, where what what's the elixir? Uh, have they have they returned with the elixir? Ah, I don't know. <laughs> And you can get yourself really confused. So I think the key for us is to keep it simple. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I had a really great writing teacher that inspired some of this stuff um, in Corey Mandel. And he teaches online classes, too. So you get, your, your listeners can look him up. Um, and he has this theory of... Um, there's sort of two types of writers. One is more um, intuitive and one is more conceptual. The conceptual side is really those kinds of tools, those building blocks of conflict and structure. And the intuitive side are writers who really feel like their characters are alive and who are leading them on a garden path and helping their characters are sort of leading the writer on the journey that the characters want to go on. And Corey's theory is really that you need to have both sides working. You oh. can't just be a slave to structure. You need to also have your characters be alive and, and feel real. Um, and the tools and techniques to make that happen, if you're not one of those sorts of writers by nature, are also very important um, to kind of really kind of live with your characters and understand them or base them on real things in your life that, um, that will make them feel more alive. Uh, so anyway, those are sort of some of the things that we use. Zach, Very anything cool. I missed there? Yeah, I'm, I'm super analytical. Like basically like all my character points are on the analytical side. And so I, but I totally recognize that as a strength and a fault. <laughs> Adam's a really good balancing point for me in that way. Um, I find it very difficult to be sort of fluid 
and and, <laughs> and sort of just following the characters. But there's a lot of benefit that comes from that. I remember when we were writing the script, you know, at uh, one point Adam encouraged us to just write journal entries in the voice of the characters mm. um, just to kind of learn what their what their journal was. And I remember really, really not wanting to do it and thinking it was a stupid waste of time and then like writing this journal entry in the voice of, of Grandpa. And it really just sort of helped clarify his his perspective of the of the father's, you know, of the father and what he thought about him and and you know, all of that came into the into being. And some of people's very favorite scene in the movie is the father and the grandfather screaming at each other. Yeah. And a lot of that is sort of what came out of those journal entries of just sort of like what I think about you. <laughs> um, that's, that's something that actors do often. You know, actors sometimes do that kind of work when they're prepping for a role. They, they'll write journal entries or they'll imagine backstory for the character and really try to understand their voice. And so I think it, it makes a lot of sense for writers to do that, too, because they, they need to know the characters just as well as the actors do. Got it. So the other thing I was wondering is you guys have been a collaborative team for a long time, and it's rare for people to have such dynamic partnerships. So I'm wondering how you guys approach collaboration, particularly something with something like directing, where I would imagine people typically have issues with stepping on each other's toes and stuff like that. But I mean, you guys seem to, to, to be a great team. So what are the what are some of the keys to having such a dynamic and effective collaboration when it comes to filmmaking? Yeah, I think it's sort of the, the most critical thing to learn. Cause even whether you're in a direct partnership, like you're co-directing um, or not, you're always going to be collaborating with others. Um, and if you can't collaborate with others, well, um, maybe not just you, but just if the, the ecology of the collaboration isn't working well, it can be very, very difficult and very toxic. And I've definitely been a part of partnerships like that. Um, I think it's, it's not something that just sort of happened perfectly. It's something Adam and I have worked at a lot over the time. And every film we do, we tweak the process and kind of the, I think the reason we initially um, decided to collaborate was because just at the very beginning already sort of, what we wanted to do and, and our tastes were very similar. So that's sort of the, sort of almost the most essential ingredient is gener generally you're excited by the same type of stuff. Um, but I think the, the next super ingredient that really kicked us off was realizing that the two of us, for whatever reason, because of the different experiences we've had, um, we are able to have the difficult conversations um, early on that you need to have to have partnerships work. Like when something isn't working, you need to be able to kind of identify why it's not working and talk about it without um, being destructive. You need to be able to kind of be able to put your ego aside and discuss an idea that you don't like or just uh, something the other partner did that you don't like or a way that they said something that you don't like. Like you need to have a partnership where ego is on, is on the side and that takes a lot of work. It's not, it's not necessarily everyone's default state. Um, you need to be able to kind of put the partnership first and yourself second. Um, and the more you do that, the more rewarding it becomes and the easier it becomes. And the more you start to kind of 
trust the process because the more kind of difficult conversations you've had and the more times you've gotten through ideas that both of you felt really strongly the opposite way, um, the more you go through that process, the more it becomes rewarding, the more you start to kind of trust that that will always be the case. Um, and so you need to find someone that kind of you have the same taste, someone that you can be egoless around, someone that you um, can be constructive and candid with, someone where when uh, you have an idea you feel really strongly about that you can articulate it to them uh, and they'll listen. But when they do the same to you, that you'll listen. Um, you know, it needs to be equal and even, and it will not be that way by default. You know, there will always be different things that each of you um, feel strongly about. And that's good. You know, we've found that a lot of the time when there is an idea or something that we both feel strongly about oppositely, <laughs> um, that usually that's because it's a very critical thing that one side or the other isn't right about. Yeah. And, and so then we will um, look for a third thing that isn't idea A or idea B, um, but idea C, which achieves both A and B. And often that is far stronger than, than either the one, one or the other. And we've been through that process enough that we, we've now kind of looked for that. And one of the tools we use, which is really useful, is instead of saying, I want to do this, and the other person says, I want to do this, we try to kind of very quickly get to, well, why do you want to do that? And why do you want to do this? So that we can understand sort of the reasoning behind it. Because then you can start to look for a third option that, that achieves both both reasons. Um, but it's, you know, I think um, I've had a few partnerships go badly, um, either, you know, romantic partnerships or business partnerships. And you learn so much from sort of going through that as to what went wrong and what what elements weren't there. And then I think just each of us found that the chemistry was, was really right. And, and, you know, we started with very small projects first, little short films and little digital series and things like that. And, and we learned things and it, but it was, but it was enjoyable and we really enjoyed working together and just kind of kept scaling up as we went and the stakes got higher, but, um, but we found that it's sort of twice as much work, but you get five times as much benefit out of it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, it's easier to just direct by yourself, but, um, but the product isn't as good. And, um, so it's kind of worth it. Got it. So last, uh, kind of big question is seeing the movie in its finished form. What would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less in? I don't necessarily mean money. It can be time, energy, resources. Um, but what would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less in? Nick, I think that's a question no one's ever asked us. All right. <laughs> Boom. You did it. Finally. Man, I mean, we invested so much in every every part of this process. We invested things we didn't have. You know, we went over budget in some places and had to beg people to do extra vis effects or extra sound mixing or, or whatever for us. So... I can't think of something that we should have invested more in. Um, I think that, you know, there were, there were definitely would have been a good idea. What's that? 
an accountant would have been a good idea. Oh yes, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> we didn't have it. We 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 thought we couldn't afford an accountant, so we didn't have one. Um, and then we ended up spending a lot more on uh, sort of forensic accounting later. Oh, figuring out how to put things together that we missed the first time. Got it. Um, uh, never, you're never going to save money by not hiring an accountant. <laughs> it's always going to cost you more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I guess I've blocked that part out. That <laughs> um, Lesson well learned. Um, you know, we, we, sh- we ended up shooting some things that we cut out of the movie. So that was sort of stuff we didn't need to invest in that we, that we ended up, you know, spending time and money doing, but it's hard to know what those things are until you get into the editing room sometimes. Right, right. Um, I don't know. Zach, anything? Uh... No, I think, well, what Adam said at the very beginning is very true is like, because this was our passion project, every step, no matter what it was, what if it was finding out, you know, the color of the wall we're going to paint or the contract we're negotiating with the actor or the sound mix or the edit like at every step we we went so hard and deep we pushed it to the every one of those steps to the to, to just a place where no one everyone else would have given up because you know we weren't being paid at all to make this movie all them all in fact we put our own money in the movie and so at every point we just were so passionate to just never give up to never stop just trying to make it as good as possible and there was plenty of people that you could tell were you know, we're done that we, we think we're good and we would just keep pushing and still find things that could make it better. Um, and that is really hard and, but it, but it pays off in the long run. Um, and it, you know, it's sort of the only thing that separates your passion project, um, from, from the rest, re- rest of the films out there that, that get made and unfortunately never get seen. Great. Great. So when it comes to last, just a few rapid fire questions. So when it comes to filmmaking and directing and writing, there's a lot of books on the topic and a lot of courses, a lot of which are created by people who've never actually done it. So that market is, is flooded with bullshit. That being said, are there any resources or books that you guys attribute to your creative success or your business success in any way? Um, I mean, there's, there's a few books here and there that, you know, helped with when I was first just learning specifically, mostly, um, screenwriting, you know, I kind of took pieces from, there's a book called anatomy of story, which I really like. Um, you know, I took little bits from save the cat when I was reading that, when I was just starting out. Um, but mostly I think what Adam and I would probably both agree on is we learn by, by just working and screwing up. Um, you know, there's this, there's this inspirational speaker that uh, we both saw a video that he did. And he's, he's a, he's someone who teaches um, musicians. And he says, every time you screw up, play a note wrong, screw up an audition, you know, every time you mess up in any way, immediately throw your arms in the air and scream, how fascinating. And it reframes every screw up and every mistake and every situation where something goes wrong as an opportunity to learn from 
and to not do that again or to figure out why that happened so you can avoid it the next time. And pretty much well, every say, day. Send your script and someone writes back and said, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. Throw yeah. your hands up and say how fascinating. <laughs> and, and, and call that person and say, please, can you walk me through why you hated this so much? Yeah. You know, which is, can be painful, but is a, is a way to learn how to, how to get better. Yeah. So I think often people are looking for the guru or the book or the thing. Um, and they just spend their whole lives kind of looking for the answer. But I think when you look at sort of all the people that are in places where maybe you would like to be, they've learned from doing, they've learned from making mistakes that often they don't tell anyone they made. Right. Um, but, but if you look back, I know that Adam and I, every day we're saying how fascinating every day <laughs> there's something, there's something going wrong. Is that a or, catchphrase or between you two? Yeah. <laughs> we have two, we have two catchphrases, how fascinating. And, uh, these are the good old days. Ah. And so that kind of helps remind you, you know, no matter how hard this is, we're going to look back at this as the good old days. And we just say that all the time. Oh, that's really cool. Who gave the uh, How Fascinating speech, if people want to look that up? Benjamin Zander. Okay, cool. I think I it was maybe a out. TED Talk that he did or something. But yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Benjamin Zander. All right, I'll definitely check that out. Well, cool. Guys, this was a real pleasure. Thank you again. And uh, congratulations on the movie. I really, really enjoyed it a lot. Any parting advice for aspiring filmmakers out there? Just start making stuff. Never Make stop. as much as you can, as quickly as you can. <laughs> and don't be too precious or perfectionist about it. You know, part of those 24-hour, 48-hour filmmaking contests are such great training ground because you're just making stuff, making stuff, making stuff, and forcing yourself to finish it. Because um, that's how you learn. Cool. Well, great. Thank you guys again. This was uh, this was a real pleasure. Thanks, Nick. All right. Really enjoyed that conversation. And uh, don't forget to follow Adam and Zach on Instagram. It's at Zach dot Lipovsky. Z a c h dot l i p o v s k y, and at Adam Stein, Adam, spelled like Adam, Stein, S-T-E-I-N. Now, as always, here are some key takeaways from this conversation with Zach Lepofsky and Adam Stein. Number one, make your casting director your first hire. When Zach and Adam began to raise funds for the movie, the first investment they made was in a casting director. Why? Well, first of all, they knew that in order for their movie to work, they needed great actors who could pull off the deeply emotional subject matter. And a casting director would be able to pitch the movie to actual stars. As we all know, good actors are a cachet that can attract more funding, which is what makes this such a critical first step. Casting directors also have access to studios as well, which can also help with funding. Find a casting director early and invest in them. Number two, when it comes to the script, correct course as you go. After writing the screenplay, Zach and Adam were constantly rewriting it, even on set as they were shooting. They stated that if some piece of dialogue felt like it didn't work, they had the presence of mind to try out different improvisational exercises to find dialogue that suited the scene 
better. In other words, they weren't so bound to the script as to treat it like it was the Bible. This really is a testament to being present on set as much as possible and adapting your material to the present moment as it presents itself to you. Zach and Adam had the flexibility and wherewithal to adapt the script to the moment, and it suited the actors and the movie, which had a very naturalistic feel to it. Doing this requires keeping everyone completely aligned and on the same page so that everyone on set is making the same movie. That's how you're able to allow for improvisation, enabling everybody to be on the same page so that they can stray from the source material as needed to better suit the movie. Number three, be a curator, not an auteur. This is huge. Um, a number of directors on this show, including Mick Garris, Dan Robbins, and Mitzi Perone, have spoken at length about how damaging auteur theory can be for a movie. For those who don't know, auteur theory is the belief that every and any decision made on a movie has to come from the director. It simply doesn't have to be that way. Zach and Adam recommend being open to getting ideas from your entire cast and crew and being the curator of those ideas by picking and choosing the ones you think work best. So what this really kind of points to is the fact that your job as a director is not necessarily to have the greatest ideas, but to find the greatest ideas. Directing is a highly collaborative art. And to not be open to the ideas around you with your cast and crew is a wasted opportunity, particularly since they can make your movie better. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to check out the show and follow it on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And I'm on Twitter at the exact same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. 